Hey, this is a Hakawati production. Hello, welcome to the men's room. You're gonna love the show today. My next guest is a media entrepreneur. Karim Rahma is well known on social media for his hilarious, slightly twisted, and insightful content, which he describes as smart videos for the smartphone generation. He's also a comedian, actor, writer, and producer. Come on, Hoover. It's 5.20, and we're still waiting for instructions as to where we can get a drop map from them before we can send the money out. In case anybody's listening to our phones, David's come up with a plan where when they contact us, we're going to give them a number of our friend Helga, who then will pass on a number to David's apartment, where David and Robert are going to be waiting, to take further instructions. Uh, David calls it a three-way switch. Um, it's a little complicated. That was an excerpt from a documentary called Miracle Fishing. It's a film that Karim executive produced earlier this year. Hi, Karim. Hey. Tell us about this film. Um, so, so Miracle Fishing is this kind of unbelievable true story um, of uh, this, this, this as, as told through Miles Hargrove, who's the director, as told through the video diaries that he took in 1994 when his father was kidnapped um, in Colombia by, uh, by the FARC. And essentially the Hargrove family had to figure out a way to get their dad out of the kidnapping um, in the midst of like a big Colombian epidemic. Um, and they obviously didn't have the money for ransom. So they had to figure out how to get the money for ransom. And essentially, Miles had this old video camera. And at the time, I think he was like 13 or 14 years old. And he picked up this camera and started filming for about a year. Um, and so the whole documentary is found footage um, from, from that year of, of him and his family uh, fighting with FARC, with the Colombian government, with the U.S. government, and essentially negotiating on how to get their father out of uh, this hostage situation. Um, it was incredible. And uh, I was working, I am working with this company, XDR, uh, which is based in Los Angeles. It's a premium nonfiction film and television studio. Um, and they were looking for executive producers. And I'm friends with the, the founder of the company, Bryn Moser, and I'm a senior uh, advisor to the company. And uh, when they asked, you know, if I would be interested in the project, I, I watched it and I'd never seen like a documentary that was just made purely out of home videos. And I thought that the story was so incredible and compelling um, that, I, that I helped, you know, make it happen. And it went on to it was supposed to premiere uh, at the at the 2020 Tribeca Film Festival. But unfortunately, that was canceled due to uh, due to COVID. But, you know, Miles has been working on this movie for for 20 years now, um, if you really think about it. Yeah, it looks like an incredible film. Where can people see it then? Uh, we're still, I think, I believe it's still waiting uh, to get picked up for distribution, but it will eventually end up on the streaming platform. Um, I think that they're still working on uh, selling it uh, to a platform, but I'm not sure. I haven't been involved after after the Tribeca situation mm -hmm. happened, so I'm not sure when 
when and where people will be able to see it, but I'm assuming it's going to be happening soon um, and in uh, on one of the big the big streaming platforms. Okay, hopefully. So um, I know Kanye West is on your mind these days. Uh, he wants to run for president of the United States. So what's going on over there in the U.S.? And since when does being a celebrity make you qualified to run a country? I mean, being a celebrity does not make you qualified to run a country, which I think we've learned already. Um, the U.S. is currently in the middle of an epidemic, which I would call an entertainment epidemic. And the idea behind this is that I think we worship entertainment more than we worship anything else, more than we worship social services, more than we worship um, racial equality, more, more than we worship um, free, freedom of speech even. I think that in the United States, people are addicted to entertainment, um, and there's a certain subsect of the population that would rather vote for an entertaining president than vote for their own self-interests. Um, and I think that's essentially the core philosophy that Kanye West is, is, is working off of, is that if he can be an entertaining person and say entertaining things, that he has a shot at being the president, which I think is true. Uh, and, and, and the minute that Donald Trump ran for president, I, I did not at all think it was a joke, uh, and I thought that he was going to win from the minute he announced his presidency. And it's really easy to laugh at Kanye, but uh, I would I would be a little more nervous because the American population currently um, is 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 very confused and has this shock and this whiplash. And I don't think people are making decisions based on their own self-interest. They're just making decisions based on what's the most entertaining option. Yeah. And I think it sounds, it seems like you really understand entertainment and you have such a, a good way of kind of being entertaining while tackling serious topics. So obviously right now, um, and for the last several weeks, it's been all about Black Lives Matter, the movement, the protests. And I know you've been super active uh, and vocal about it on your Instagram account and on your social media. Do you identify um, with African-Americans as an Egyptian-American and an Arab dude with an Afro? <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I think um, for me, it was it was a late realization that in the eyes of the police and in the eyes of a broader American society, you know, they see a black person, you know, when they look at me and I'm not, I haven't gone through the experience of being truly black in America. You know, my father immigrated here in 1969 of his own volition and his own will. Um, so it's not the same story that, that, that the African American story is. Um, but yeah, in the eyes of the police and in the eyes of the oppressors and in the eyes of the government, it's really all the same thing. So for me, uh, speaking out against the injustices happening against the black community in America is very important. Um, and it's a, it's a cause that I think at this point, every single person of every single color should be standing up for, uh, because it's, it is, it has been happening for far too long and it hasn't, it's not just happening in America. It's happening in other countries. And I think that, that black people have, have, and, and even colorism in general is a problem, even when there's not you know, African American people, darker skinned people uh, are 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 you know they're I forgot the word for it uh, they're persecuted 
or they are, uh, people are racist against them. Mm-hmm. And I think that everybody needs to speak up against this kind of racism. Yeah, I know you've been super involved with the protests um, and active, but you had this post a while back that I thought was really kind of explained what you're talking about when you're trying to explain like how people are treated. You went to a shop and the sa- the cashier made a comment. Yeah. What What did she say? Yeah, it was um, it was like during the George Floyd, like the real week of rioting and protesting and everyone's tensions were so high and this conversation was was going global you know and i was in minneapolis in the place where the murder of george floyd actually occurred and i went to the small local shoe store to buy because i've i've been essentially displaced in minnesota i usually live in new york but i've been in minneapolis for the past two months dealing with some family from some family stuff and um, and, and the woman that was checking me out at this local shoe store, she said, we take MasterCard, Visa and cash, preferably not counterfeit. And then she laughed. And, you know, the reason that George Floyd was murdered by the police is because he used a counterfeit 20 at the place, uh, that he was buying stuff from and they called the cops on him and, ended up killing him. And and this is, you know, maybe two or three days later that this lady is either making an extremely off-color joke and remark that just shows how unbelievably detached she is from the racial conversation happening in America and from the moment. And that just shows how much white privilege she's carrying around to make a joke about the murder. Or she truly is racist and she's telling me, don't use counterfeit cash here. Uh, I actually think that joking about it is worse. I actually think that that and I actually think that that is what her intention was. I think she was trying to make a joke. And I and I and I walked out of the store and I was with my mom uh, who wears a hijab and I was silent for about 10 minutes and my mom was like what happened? And I explained to her the situation and the more I spoke about it out loud the more I realized that saying something like that is an act of aggression. You know, it's not a joke at all. It's it's really not funny. It's 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 just, it's an act of, of of aggression. It's an act of trauma, uh, and it's an act of privilege. And what you know, and then I took the next step of publishing it on Instagram and hoping that they would see it, and they did. And fortunately, the owner of the store uh, did not offer me a free pair of shoes, which. I was ready to go berserk if he was going to be like, how can I make this right? Can I give you a gift certificate? Um, but instead, he offered to to give me a call or to meet up in person for as long as I wanted and to talk about kind of the demands uh, that would help make this right. And so, in my opinion, because systemic change is necessary and because, you know, this is not a one-time thing, I'm not interested in having a moment of, of, of like peace. I'm interested in seeing long-term results. Um, I demanded that they do three things. The first thing was that the lady not be fired because I wanted her to learn, uh, you know, that even though she made a mistake that we're people that are still looking out for one another and that she could learn from this and see and, and, and educate her friends, uh, and the people that she probably hangs out with, that people of color 
are, you know, uh, good, good people that, that essentially more or less spared her, uh, her job and, and didn't want her to get fired. Uh, and then I also asked that they make a monitor monetary and financial donation to a black lives matter organization, um, to really put their money where their mouths are. And at that point, financial support to that organization shows that Schuster's is on the right side of history and is not just saying things. I mean, it would be tough for me to donate to a cause that I don't believe in. So I really believe that money uh, does make a difference. And then I also asked them to vow to make a commitment to diversity in their marketing, uh, not only the marketing on their own accounts of which they have, I think they have, I think they only have two stores. I think they have one in Virginia and one in St. Paul. Uh, but still that kind of local marketing to put people of color on their Instagram pages, on their websites, um, and then to also demand that of their corporate partners, uh, which is like Birkenstock, who also does not include people of color, does not include black people on their marketing and on their social channels. I told them to bring that to the corporate uh, level of, of, of Birkenstock. So I think those kind of changes are systemic. Those kind of changes can make a long lasting impact. I'm not really interested. Uh, you know, I had people reach out from the local news asking to tell my story about what happened. And I'm like, I don't really, it's not about me. Uh, I'm not really interested in getting this lady fired. I'm not really interested in getting the store closed. What I'm interested in is is trying to make a change. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the that was kind of the story. That's really cool that you followed up and you had this opportunity to to bring it up. And speaking of marketing, um, do you think that some companies are kind of ha hijacking this moment in time to sell more products by bringing in more diversity? Or do you think that it's an honest uh, effort? So for instance, you know, on Jemima, the, the syrup is changing their logo. They had an African-American woman who was a former slave um, on their label and, and they're changing that. Um, do, you think, do you think this is good, even if it's being used to um, appeal to a segment of the population or to, to the people? I think that the time is right. And I think, you know, I don't think that, I think they're getting ahead of it in a way, you know, like the Aunt Jemima thing should have been changed years ago. Uh, and I think that rather than have a shitstorm later on, they're trying to save themselves from having a shitstorm later on. Um, you know, I think it's it is completely horrendous that it even exists uh, and that they have to change it. But I do think the change now is better than change never. I don't think that anyone thinks that they're going to sell more syrup. Uh, that's the question. I don't think like Aunt Jemima thinks that because they're changing this label that they're going to that they're going to sell more syrup, I think that they're just realizing that right now people are calling for change. And in the same way that local governments are listening and local businesses are listening and white allies and, and, and people of color allies are listening, I think these large corporations are also listening. Are they going to miss the mark sometimes? Yes. Do I give them the benefit of the doubt? Honestly, not really. I don't really care about corporations in any way, shape or form. I, if they mess up, I don't care. Like, I'm saying I don't feel bad for them, right? Like if if they decide that they want to change Aunt Jemima's logo and everyone says, hey, you guys are losers. You should have done this years ago. I feel no sympathy for them because it's true. But the fact that they're doing it is still a win, in my opinion. It's still something that we should celebrate. You know, I don't think that you should buy more syrup uh, from them, but I do think that 
you know, change is change. And by any means necessary, it should come. Yeah. So you've been also very vocal about uh, Breonna Taylor. You've been unrelenting uh, about bringing attention to this case about this African-American woman that was murdered in her own apartment. Why, why are you so adamant about her case? Because it doesn't make any sense to me that somebody gets murdered and that the people that murder them don't get arrested. It's as simple as that. Uh, I also think that women of color and black women in particular don't get as much attention in the news or even on social media. And so Brianna Taylor's case is unique uh, for so many different reasons. But I think the fundamental of it, the fundamentals of it is that a woman sitting on her couch gets shot. Whoever shoots her should get arrested. But in America, because the people who shot her are police, they have not been arrested. Uh, and only one of them has lost their job. So to me, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. If you're a doctor and you accidentally kill people, you probably get your license revoked. Um, but in, in America, when you're a police officer and you accidentally kill someone, you just continue being a police officer. So it's a case that I think is, it, it, it is such a model case for justice. It's so easy to understand. And the fact that they haven't arrested those cops still doesn't make any sense to me. So until they do, I'm going to keep talking about Breonna Taylor and keep saying her name and keep urging people to sign petitions and donating money and emailing representatives and calling representatives. And I try to do it at least once a day. Um, and, 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 you know, I think there's a conversation right now happening about memes and about using her name uh, in a way that is kind of indifferent to the fact that she was murdered. And as a person of color, but not black person in America, I have respected uh, the black people of America by saying, like, I, I made memes at first and I thought I was being helpful. And I thought that like me making a video every single day or me making a meme every single day about Breonna Taylor was, was a helpful thing. And that would keep her name uh, in the, in the global conversation. But after hearing from several black people uh, that it is not helpful and that they think it's trivializing her, uh, you know, I've stopped making any sort of viral videos or meme content about her. And I've instead been putting up very serious content um, that is still reminding people to say her name and to still fight for justice on behalf of this woman who was murdered while laying in her couch. That's so interesting, though, because you're a really funny guy. And I know you're referring to some video, like you did a video where you were getting your teeth cleaned at the dentist and you were saying that it's a good day to arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor, um, which was kind of a funny video. And that's kind of your expertise is making issues, taking serious issues and making, the, making them entertaining, the content entertaining enough so that people engage with it. So it's interesting to look, I can see that you're kind of trivializing it in the end or how someone could think that. But at the same time, if it's always so serious, people also kind of lose interest. So I'm not sure which is right, um, personally. Um, but you, this is not a new thing for you to be interested in uh, racial issues. You're Egyptian, you're not black. Um, but as you said, you, you kind of identify with kind of a mi being a minority. Um, and you actually have a, a podcast, right, called uh, You People. Are you still doing that, by the way? Yeah, 
So we're still we're we're gonna do season two of the podcast. We did season one of the podcast, uh, but then pandemic riot season uh, kind of stopped our our season two in its tracks. But we're definitely picking it up again. And yeah, you people, um, it's it, it's a it's a conversational podcast, um, having conversations with the diverse voices shaping modern America today. The thoroughfare is that, you know, I haven't seen a podcast where Asian Americans, Latino Americans, African Americans, Arab Americans, any sort of hyphenated person can come on and share their, uh, you know, more or less their hero's journey, more or less like how they came to America, how they grew up, what their parents were like, and then how they got to where they are now. And I think that there's so many interesting stories that people tell individually. That's kind of really what the podcast is about. It's about these little nuggets, these little micro stories, mostly focused on on racism or feeling like you're not a part of America as you're growing up. And, and, and having that be actually a superpower once you grow up and being in these rooms and having this, di- this different perspective or this different voice uh, and using it to your advantage. So really the podcast is meant to inspire the next generation of creative people of color uh, to hear these stories and to have this can-do attitude and to have idols and to have mentors uh, that are already doing things that that they want to be doing. Yeah, that's really cool, by the way. I, I listened to the interview with Anthony Hall, who's the Korean Black actor and producer. Uh, it was yeah. a really interesting story. And I always say hardship often uh, breeds success and uh you know the stories that you that you're talking about what you're talking about is exactly that but um you grew up in the states your parents are both egyptian correct yeah but you're very american in the in your behavior Do you, is there any part of you that identifies with your egyptian or arab culture i i mean i 100% identify as egyptian american um and I think, you know, you can't even avoid it just because my name is Kareem Rahma. I think I automatically have that as a part of me no matter what I do, you know, no matter what I look like, no matter how I dress, no matter how I act, I'm still Kareem Rahma, which is like definitely an Arab or definitely an Arab American. Um, I think, you know, for me, I grew up in a very white state in a very white neighborhood And for me, as the oldest child of two immigrant parents, my only mission was to assimilate as quickly as possible for me. That's how I felt I could keep my family safe. And that's how I felt I needed to adapt in order to live in America, because both my parents had accents. Both my parents acted weird or differently, you know, uh, and I'm using those, I'm using air quotes right now because it wasn't weird or different. They just acted Egyptian, uh, but it wasn't the same as my American neighbors. And that's who I grew up around, American neighbors. And I went to American schools with American people. So for me, and, and I have two younger siblings, the name of the game was, hey, we're normal. Hey, we're just like you. Hey, like, you know, like Muslim people are just like Christian people and Jewish people. Like, we're all the same. You know, it's really about, like, being a chameleon. And I think, you know, after 9-11, that accelerated even more to the point where it became even more of a defensive thing and a distancing thing. And at that point, I wasn't even interested in being uh, Arab at all uh, because what you see on the news in America is a lot different than what you see on the news uh, in the Middle East and and in Asia and in Europe and so on. Like the news is meant to convince you of certain things. 
So for me, as a young person in America, I watch the news in America and I see these things happening and I go, well, that's not the Arabs that I know or that's not the Muslims that I know. Like I've been to Egypt, but I don't want to say that when I'm a kid in high school. Like what I want to do in high school is be just like everyone else. I want to just have the same experience that everyone else is having. Um, and so I think, you know, it wasn't until college when I really started making friends with other Arab Americans uh, and, and Egyptian Americans that I felt like I finally found my niche of people who were not, um, you know, they were not afraid to embrace their Arab and Egyptian heritage. But at the same time, they also knew that they were uniquely positioned to be Americans as well. Um, and I think that's the kind of turning point into when I started embracing my culture a lot more, uh, started going to Egypt on annual visits. Uh, and I used to, I used to go on these like trips with really no intention, but to absorb as much of the culture as I could, you know, and like regain the time that I had lost. Cause I'd never lived in Egypt for an extended amount of time. Uh, and even in college when I was, when I was going, I would go for a month or so. And that's, you know, now that still continues. I try to visit at least every year or every other year. Uh, and I try to go for anywhere between two weeks to a, to a month. Um, and really it's the sole purpose of these trips is to just like remember and to feel rooted in that culture. Hmm. So interesting. You're also a poet. You published a book last February called We Were Promised Flying Cars. Why do you write poetry? And isn't that kind of... A dead art? Um, I I think that poetry is 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 an interesting form. I think I personally write poetry because I have, you know, I feel like I have two people living inside of my inside of me. One of them is extremely depressed <laughs> and the other one's extremely uh, humorous and optimistic. And the comedy scratches uh, you know, this, this like energetic voice, you know, the comedy is like something that I do when I'm in a really good mood or when I feel manic for lack of better words. Uh, and then poetry is something that I do when I'm trying to, to gr grapple with whatever internal dialogue or internal monologue I'm having. Um, and, you know, I've been writing poetry for a long time and, and, the the, the words change, you know, depending on the day. And I think for a long time, I was I was writing poetry because I was like depressed and I was trying to really like make sense of loneliness and isolation and um, and love and and you know metamorphosis. And it was really serious subject matter, right? Like it was really serious poetry that I was writing. And then one day I started infusing a little bit of humor in the poetry and it was almost like a punchline at the end of the poems. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, and I, I put myself, I chuckled, you know, I, I put myself in a good mood by writing something and then having like a punchline at the end. Uh, and, and it's actually interesting is that, that poetry is what really led me to comedy. Like I was a poet first and a comedian second. Now I would say I'm a comedian first and a poet second, but I think that'll, that, I think that that will that juxtaposition will occur throughout the rest of my life, uh, just depending on what mood I'm in or how I feel. Um, and then, and then we were promised flying cars specifically was, uh, a project that came to me when I was in Beirut actually. And I'd felt this weird nostalgia, this weird 
feeling of being drawn to Beirut, uh, and the Americans don't have a word for it. There's no English word for it, but Germans do, and it's called Fernois, and it's longing for a place or a time that you've never been in. And I had this weird longing to be in Beirut, and when I was there, it came to me one one night to like write a hundred poems from the future about the future and in the form of haiku. And the title was, We Were Promised Flying Cars. Like all of these things just happened one night. Like I literally woke up in the middle of the night and wrote all those things down. And I woke up the next day and I looked at it and I go, oh, that's a really great idea. And so I started writing poems that were all haiku uh, and just kept going until I had like 200 of them. Uh, And then I had a friend help me read them and edit them and you know, remove the ones that didn't make a lot of sense or that weren't that didn't fit into the book and essentially found a publisher um, called Pioneer Works, who's a museum, a very like contemporary and hip museum in Red Hook, Brooklyn, who was very supportive of the project. Uh, they liked that it. it was like this experimental uh, thing and something that had not really been done before. And I think that, I think that, uh, you know, is poetry a a dying art form? I don't think so. I don't think that, that that's the truth. I actually think it's growing right now at a faster rate than it's grown in the past hundred years. Uh, and I think that's because of social media and the ability to share poetry uh, on Instagram and on Twitter and on all these other platforms. Um, I think people you know, have a hard time sitting down and reading an entire book of poetry, but I think genu- gener- generally speaking, I think most people enjoy poetry. Um, and I think that the other kind of big issue with poetry that I've always had is that it has always felt like it's, that there's a high barrier to entry, that you need to have like a stunning vocabulary or like a really incredible grasp on the English and, and the English language. And I personally don't have that. You know, my, I, my poetry is based in thought and is rooted in ideas. And it's really am I able to get an idea across with the simplest language possible? That's like my favorite thing. You know, I'm not Shakespearean and I'm not writing things that are like the most beautiful things you've ever read. Mine are more like head scratchers, like getting someone to understand an idea in the simplest way possible. Um, Do you have one off the top of your head? Like a, like specifically a poem from the book or a poem from my life. Um, Whatever you want. Off the top of my head, I don't have one off the top of my head, but I can find one for you as we talk. Yeah, well, maybe when, once you, if you have like uh, your book or if you want to read one in a little bit, that would be cool. Um, so you're really funny, by the way. I love also that you're not like vain. <laughs> you know, like when you talk about influencers, one of the things that I think people are getting tired of is just this whole like show offy vain thing. And clearly, this is not your issue. Um, you have no shame in showing your, you know, yourself uh, in any light. And, you know, we see your nose hairs sometimes. Um, How do you come up with your videos? And do you have like a strategy? So I pretty much always am writing like text messages to myself. uh, And I've learned that it's the like, actually, that is something I also took from poetry is that if I have a thought, I have to write it down or else I'm going to forget it 100%. So I have two separate um, two separate files. One of them is where 
I write like lines for poetry and every poem I write starts with a single line. And then every single video I make or creative comedy idea I make starts with a single sentence or line as well. So I just have two files on my phone where I put literally one-liners. And unfortunately, sometimes I look back on them and I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> like the <laughs> other day. Let me look here. In my, in, my comedy, um, in my comedy notes, I have a couple of ideas here that I don't know what they mean. So I have, I have one here called Adopt a New Yorker, parentheses COVID. Hi, my name is Steve and I used to own a matcha shop. So at some point, I thought that that was a great idea. Uh, <laughs> at this point, I don't know what it means, but I feel like here's another one that says, I can't read German, but dot, dot, dot. So that's in my comedy uh, archive, right, of like ideas for comedy. And then in my poetry file, I have one that says, I wake up, the first breath feels fresh. I'm sentimental. I've never finished that poem, but it was like an idea for a poem. And then there's an there's another one here that sounds like it's a pretty funny poem. Good morning, my love. May I watch over your shoulder as you scroll through your feed. Um, I, don't think I, that <laughs> I love poem, that. But I think I should publish it. Um, I don't think I ever put that one anywhere. But um, yeah, I mean, mostly for me, it's like I try to make something every day that is my part of my creative philosophy is I try to make something every day, whether it's an Instagram post or a tweet or a poem or an entire sketch. Yesterday I finished uh, a film uh, with my friend, uh, 129 pages. Um, we didn't do the whole thing in one day, obviously, but it just, I always have to do something. I have to make something every day. You know, that's, those are the days that I feel, um, complete and like at ease are days when I when I do something. When you create something. Yeah. So my process is very. It's a lot less methodological than me methodological than many creators. I don't really have a process other than like write down ideas when they come, and then try to make them. You know, that's like my entire process. I don't really wait around for people. I try to collaborate a lot. Um, you know, I try to bring collaborators. I have frequent collaborators in my life. Uh, they don't really show up in my videos, but they're behind the scenes. Um, and they're people that I bounce ideas off of or concepts off of, or, you know, I get feedback on my sketches. Uh, but I'm always trying to move things along um, at the same time. And, and to answer your other question, like, you know, I didn't make my first comedy video until I think it was like maybe seven months ago. And I remember being like at that point, my feed was all poems only. I, w I hadn't published any comedy. Uh, I was known as a poet only. And I was so hesitant and resistant in the same way that when I published my first poem, I was like on, like on Instagram. I'd, I'd been writing it for a long time, writing poems for a long time, but I'd never put one on Instagram. And I was like, wow, now people are going to know me as a poet. Like, do I want to be known as a poet? Like, I don't really want to be known as a poet. I was really, I was so nervous about being judged. I was so nervous about putting myself out there. And the same thing happened with comedy. I was like, I'm not a comedian. I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, are people going to find this funny? And I also had the same conversation that you're talking about with this, like, feeling vain. You know, that the camera's in my face, that I'm, like, the star of the show. And... 
I was just like, you know what? I have these ideas, these humorous ideas that I just need to get across. So I just, I just decided that I wasn't going to do hair and makeup and I wasn't going to make any of my videos look good. And I was literally like most of the time I'm just like laying on the couch and I get a great idea and I go, well, I'm going to do that right now. And then I just do it. I literally just get up and do it. And it takes me. And like, on, for example, on the way to the dentist is when I thought of that idea. Like I wasn't thinking about that idea until I literally pulled, was driving my car and I was like, ooh, I'm going to ask the dentist if I can, if I can make a video about Breonna Taylor. But it wasn't planned. And then when I got to the dentist, I go, hey, I'm going to make this video. And they go, okay, that's fine. And that's it. And I didn't care if I had boogers or nose hairs because, like, that's not the point. You know, the point was to get a message across or an idea across. Um, and I think, you know, I was able to accomplish it that way. So you're obviously kind of uh, knee-deep in social media. What are your thoughts on TikTok? I love TikTok. It's my favorite platform. I think it's like the most superior editing tools, the most superior um, technology, the most superior filters. It's just creator friendly. Um, that's number one. It's most of the videos that you see are in, on Instagram are edited in TikTok. Like I use TikTok like somebody else would use Adobe Premiere. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed that actually because I, I played around with it a little bit. Um, I don't I don't spend yeah. so much time as you, but I, I agree with you. I mean, the tools are incredible. Like you can create almost anything that you would create with Adobe Premiere and more. Yeah, and once I got on the app, I was like, and then I logged back onto Instagram. I was like, wow, this feels like the oldest app in the world. Like I felt like Instagram, I was like, I've been looking at this for 10 years. I don't want to look at this anymore, you know? And, and so TikTok is definitely my primary focus. Like I make content for TikTok first and then I put it on Instagram second, but like TikTok's my primary app. It's also, you know, the only like discovery based app out there right now. Whereas most of the apps are feed based and they're based on who you follow and what you're following. And I love it so much. I think it's I think it's the most incredible platform literally since Facebook. I will say I don't actually follow along with a lot of the political TikTok drama uh, because I don't really care about Donald Trump uh, and his opinion on TikTok. And people are like, oh, yeah, TikTok's cool if you want your your data in the hands of the Chinese government. And I'm like, dude, if the Chinese government wants my data, they can literally find it. It's on Facebook, it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram, it's in my emails, it's on my text messages. Like any anyone that is thinking like, oh, I don't use TikTok because I don't want the Chinese to have my data. I'm like, you're a simp. You don't even understand technology. I can just Google you and get as much, I could probably figure out your password by Googling you, you know? Um, Anyways, I think it's I think it's just like a, you know, we'll see what happens with it. But I hope it's not removed from the United States because it's one of the things that makes me happy. Yeah, that would be huge. Um, but you're right. Our data is all out there already. So it is kind of funny. I, I, I told my friend, uh, I was like, I really hope it doesn't happen. And he was like, dude, teens would burn the entire country down more <laughs> than they did with 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 the murder of George Floyd if TikTok was removed from the United States. Like, that's what my friend said. And I was like, he's got a point. Like, these little kids would literally go in the streets and burn the entire country down if they tried to take TikTok out of here. Yeah, you're probably right. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So I want to end this interview 
by asking you a question that I've heard you ask. What's your favorite karaoke song? My favorite karaoke song is Mr. Brightside by The Killers. Or, so, actually, no, I take it back. That's my favorite group one. When everyone's singing together, I love doing Mr. Brightside by The Killers. When I'm alone on stage, Semi-Charmed Life by Third Eye Blind. I'm very, very into alt-rock and pop-punk uh, from the early 2000s, my favorite genre of music. Remind me how that song goes again? I'm packed and I'm holding, I'm smiling, she living, she coming, she lives for me, says she... It's that song. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Do you know that song? Yeah, of course. I want something else to get me through this. I need to do some karaoke. Semi charm like kind most... of life. Exactly. Yeah, that's the song. <laughs> it's that's a good song. Jam. It's a good song. I need to um I need to do karaoke. I'm a, I'm addicted. I haven't been able to do it since quarantine. Yeah, you should come. Well, don't they open everything already in New York? No. No. Aren't, aren't they careless <laughs> no, and carefree? No, New York is New York is the only part of the United States where cases are going down. I'm very proud of that state and city. And it's incredible. Everywhere else in the United States, the cases are going up. So no karaoke, though. I think that's too much COVID. Well, you should come and sing karaoke in Beirut. We got some great karaoke places here. Very fancy. You would love it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. I love Beirut. It's, my, it's my, one of my favorite places. Yella, we're waiting for you. I'm coming soon. Oh, I found a poem if, if you want. Uh, oh, if yes. you want me to read one. By all means. It's very timeless. I wrote this book in 2018. Um, and this this is a poem. It's on page 37 of We Were From Plop, We Were Promised Flying Cars. It's a haiku, so it's very short, but it goes, Robot lives matter because some things never change. White lives matter more. And the title of the poem is We're Still Here Holding These Signs. And I think it's very timely uh, because that's true. We're still here holding these signs. It's a, a nice way to wrap this conversation up. And best of luck with everything you're doing. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. It's great to meet you. Thanks for having me on the show. Did you like Karim? If you did, make sure to follow him on Instagram at Karim. You won't regret it. You can also follow Hakawati and me on social media. And be sure you're subscribed to the Men's Room podcast because that's really important for us. And if you like the show, you can also check out the TMR collection of accessories on lebelique.com and maisonorient.com and now on lebanesedesigners.com. Have a good one.